Amen. Let's take our Bibles this morning to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter number 7. And uh, no, I'm, I've not forgotten what month of the year it is, obviously, and it's not a Christmas message, though it is sometimes a, often and often is a Christmas passage. Uh, but we are going to begin in Isaiah chapter 7. You might also want to find your place in 2 Chronicles chapter number 20. Uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. We're going to read here in Isaiah and get started and then we'll be moving uh, to 2 Chronicles 20 here shortly. Uh, and then back into 2 Chronicles chapter number 17. <clears throat> I want to help you this morning and myself this morning to just be reminded uh, that if I want my life to be successful... Uh, especially the Christian life, my walk with God, my uh, to live in a way in which God blesses my life and can give me empowerment and strength to reach others and to, uh, to be what he wants me to be. There are some definite keys that God has given us, and we're going to kind of contrast two different kings this morning. They're not, uh, they're not contemporary to one another in that uh, they served at the same time, though they did both serve the same nation. Uh, nation of Judah. And so as we begin here in Isaiah chapter 7, uh, they're under the reign of Ahaz. And the first several verses give, give details about the fact that they're under siege uh, from, from Syria and from Israel. And we're going to pick up in verse number 5 here. Uh, and it says here, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have taken evil counsel against thee, saying... Let us go up against Judah and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabeel. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within threescore and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it shall not be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. And if ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will ye weary my God also? And therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good. The land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken both of both her kings. And I want to speak this morning on this thought, simply three keys to a successful life. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning again for our opportunity to come together. Lord, thank you for your word and its, its power. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would encourage us in the way, that you would rebuke us in our sin, to draw us to a point of repentance and uh, as we fall under conviction and that we would uh, humble ourselves before you and follow your will for our lives. Lord, I pray that you would bless those who do as you've promised that you will. Lord, I pray that you would not uh, let us escape uh, from, from that convicting power until we relent and we walk and live the lives that you have for us. 
Lord, that you might use us, that you might be glorified, that we may make, might make an impact in our, uh, on our neighbors, our communities, our families for your glory. Lord Jesus, make it so, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we look here this morning, Ahaz is the king of Judah. And he uses some different names for Israel here. He mentions Ephraim, uh, and then he makes it clear that the head of Ephraim is Samaria. Uh, and so the distinction is, is this, that, that Israel, the ten northern tribes, were in a time of the divided kingdom. Uh, really the time that all of Israel was united was very brief. It was just... Uh, the last 30 years of the reign of David and then the reign of Solomon. Uh, and it, it just it fell apart almost immediately after Solomon's death and it became divided. And so you've got 10, 10 tribes in the north that make up the nation of Israel and you have two tribes in the south that make up the nation of Judah. Now here, they're also referred to as Ephraim. That does not, he's not claiming that Ephraim is a separate entity from Israel the term Ephraim has to do uh, with the coupling of, of the depravity of Israel and what God's pronounced judgment upon them. And he's drawn a distinction that in, within 65 years, he says within, within three score and five years uh, of this pronouncement, within 65 years, this is going to be wiped out and they are, you're going to be sent into exile uh, and, that, and dispersed. And that continues to this day. So Israel is, is being regathered as we speak. They have been being since the end of the Holocaust and World War II and as the establishment of Israel as a nation in 1948. But the Jews are still dispersed. The Israel, the nation is still dispersed. And so the term here, Ephraim, uh, is talking about the outcasts of Israel. If you read the, the phrase, the outcasts of Israel, you're talking about those that whenever this came to be and they were scattered, uh, they are the outcasts of Israel, whereas Judah are referred to as the dispersed of Israel or the dispersion. So one group rejects God. They never had a single king that loved the Lord, that led them in righteousness, that did anything that was, uh, that was worthy of God's blessing or empowerment or protection, though at times he gave it. Uh, they were corrupt and they are outcasts. God cast them out. Whereas Judah had times of revival and they had times of God's blessing and times in which they followed the Lord and God uh, was able to reach them and, uh, and revivals would come and, and God would be glorified. And, uh, and so when judgment came to them and Babylon came and Nebuchadnezzar invaded, they were dispersed. And so uh, this is, you kind of look at this and what's going on, they are about to be outcasts. They're, they're about to be thrust out and the others are going to be dispersed as God uh, brings judgment upon them. So Israel and Syria here are allied together against Judah and God comes to Ahaz, the king of Judah, uh, and he says, you've got a problem. Syria and Israel are aligning themselves against you. They're going to come and they're going to overthrow you and set up a puppet government essentially. Uh, and uh, then the name of the man that they wanted to put on the throne is given there. And so God is coming to intervene. God's coming to give an opportunity. Isn't it amazing how uh, that God gives us opportunities that we don't deserve? You can make an argument this morning when you look at where we are as a nation. I pray for our nation. I'm grieved at where we are as a nation. Uh, I could never in, in, in imagine 
whenever I was a child growing up in North Texas that, uh, that our nation could be in my lifetime where it is today in comparison to where it was then. It was unthinkable to me. It's still somewhat hard to process and to absorb. But as I look at where we are and what we're doing, I often uh, come to myself, and I don't mean to be offensive to anybody here. This is just kind of an internal conversation I have in my head. And I think I'm praying that God will give us revival. But if he doesn't, I really can't complain because we're getting what we deserve. And essentially, Israel here and Judah are about to get what they deserve. God has made overtures to them. God has given opportunity and they have rejected him. And so they come here now uh, and Ahaz is king. Now Ahaz is a young man. Ahaz ascended the throne when he was just 20 years of age. And so at 20... He's on the throne. He's making decisions. He's calling the shots. He's defending his people. He's uh, trying to uh, set aside and, and establish their way of life. But he is an evil king. He has rejected the ways of God. And he has rejected God's prophets. And he will not listen to God's word. And he uh, is just kind of doing things the way that all of the nations around them are doing them. And so they come, they want to conquer, and God comes, sends Isaiah with a promise. And his promise is threefold. His promise, he comes and he says, listen, or, or the promise is this, that I'm going uh, to war against, or the war against you is going to fail. He just comes in and he says, listen, they're allied against you. I'm going to take care of that. Don't worry about that. It will fail. Now, it fails in the sense that they do not overthrow the city and they do not set up a new king. It fails in the sense, and we don't have time to really delve deeply into uh, the, how many were killed and captured, but a number of them were, were killed in the battle and their, their losses were heavy, though, because they rejected God. He gives, I'm going to give you a sign. And the sign, of course, we preach about at Christmas time often, uh, is Jesus. It is the virgin born son of God. Uh, I'm going to give you a sign. Uh, he asked him to, to ask for a sign so that you'll believe it. He refused to do that. He wouldn't even listen to God uh, in that regard. And Isaiah rebukes him. And so he says, I, the, the promise is the war is going to fail. I'm going to give you a sign that I'm here, that I'm with you. But he says, I'm also going to give you a warning. And the warning is, is that you, if you do not believe, you will not be established. So I want you to uh, notice here where, where we're reading here. It says in verse number 9 in Isaiah 7, uh, And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. He has an opportunity. He rejects the opportunity. He will not do what God told him to do. God keeps his word, fulfills the promise, the invasion fails. He establishes the coming Messiah. But he also says if you don't fall in line, you're not going to be established. Ahaz died at 36. So for just 16 years he sat on Israel's throne. And after he died, then his son Hezekiah followed him. And Hezekiah was 25. Just kind of give you a little context of where they were culturally and, uh, and, the, and the complexities of this. If my math is right, then that means that Ahaz was just 16 years old whenever Hezekiah was born to him. And so at 20, he's on the throne. By 36, he's dead because he would not fall in line and commit himself to what God wanted to do in his life. On the other hand, we see in 2 Chronicles chapter number 20. If you'll uh, hold your place here, we may have time to come back. 
But I'm just trying to establish here that there are two different, basically, there are a lot of different variations of this, but there are two primary ways in which we choose to live. We are either going to live according to our own will or we're going to live according to the will of God. We're going to follow our own reasoning and our own way of thinking and we're going to just kind of drift through life pleasing ourselves or we're going to go through life purposefully uh, knowing the will of God and executing the will of God for our life. In 2 Chronicles chapter number 20, you see similar circumstances. It is a different time, but the circumstances are the same. We're still dealing here with the nation of Judah, <coughs> and so we're not uh, trying to make an apples to oranges comparison, but rather an apples to apples comparison. Uh, and so in verse number 20, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, in verse number 20, And they rose early in the morning and went into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, believe in the Lord your God, and so shall ye be established. Believe his prophets, so shall ye prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord that should praise the beauty of holiness, as they went out before the army, and to say, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endureth forever. And when they began to sing and to praise the Lord, uh, set ambushments against the children of Ammon in Moab and Mount Seir, and were come against Judah, and they were smitten. And so what's going on here is that Jehoshaphat is the king, is a godly king, is a righteous king, and he's not a casually righteous king. And what I mean by that is this. When you look at the kings of Judah and you see some that were corrupt and, and forsook God, and you see some that, that followed the Lord, sometimes you'll see the, the, the phraseology of the scripture say something like this. And this king was, became king, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. But he followed not after the ways, all the ways of David his father. And then in other times you'll see where it'll say, he's a good king, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and he followed after all the ways of David his father. And sometimes you'll see that and it'll say, but he tore not down the high places or the places of the worship of false gods. And in other places you'll see a specific king where it'll say, and he tore down the high places. Josiah uh, was one such king. And we see, uh, and as Jehoshaphat ascends the throne in chapter 17 of 2 Chronicles, if you want to turn back a page or two, in the first few verses here, we see his ascension to the throne. The Bible doesn't give us that I could see Jehoshaphat's age. Oftentimes it tells us how old they were whenever they became the king and it tells us how many years they reigned. In Jehoshaphat's case we don't know how old he was for certain whenever he ascended the throne. And Jehoshaphat his son reigned in his stead and strengthened himself against Israel and he placed forces in all the fenced cities of Judah and set garrisons in the lands of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim uh, which Asa his father had taken. And the Lord was with Jehoshaphat Notice why he's with him. Because he walked in the first ways of his father David and sought not unto Balaam, but sought to the Lord God of his father and walked in his commandments and not after the doings of Israel. Therefore, the Lord established the kingdom in his hand and all Judah brought to Jehoshaphat presence and he had riches and honor in abundance and his heart was lifted up in the ways of the Lord. Moreover, he took away the high places and the groves out of Judah. Notice down in verse number 9. 
And they taught. Now he sent out the Levites and, and others and the scribes to teach. And they taught in Judah and had the book of the law of the Lord with them and went about throughout all the cities of Judah and taught the people. And so you see the contrast between Jehoshaphat and Ahaz. Ahaz, king, under attack, besieged, and God comes to him and says, if you will, then I will. And he says, I will not. And he says, then you won't be established. 16 years later, he's dead. His, his lands are a mess. Jehoshaphat comes. He tears down the high places. He commits his life to God. He reads and studies the scripture. He sends spiritual teachers, prophets, scribes, uh, the Levites out to teach the word of God to the people. He says, listen to the word of God. Listen to the men of God. Listen to the prophets as they come. Do what the Bible says. Live according to the will of God and you'll be established. And I'll bless you. And I'll give you empowerment. Now Jehoshaphat is not a perfect king. He is a better king than most. But he's not a perfect king. He, he, makes some, he makes some foolish decisions along the way. Primarily in that he lists here how he set up some things in Ephraim or in the northern kingdom in Israel that his father had taken. Ahab at this time is the king of Israel. And so he makes an alliance with probably the most wicked of all of Israel's king uh, as he's under attack from Ammon and Moab. Rather than just fully relying upon God, he makes an alliance with Ahab. And so he's not perfect. And neither are we. But in spite of our imperfection, and in spite of some bad decisions, if our heart is lined up with the Word of God, and we're pursuant to the will of God for our individual lives, then we put ourselves into a place where when we're willing to listen to the Word of God, when we're willing to listen to the Word of God proclaimed, when we're willing to take the principles that are presented, or that we study on our own and make application to our daily lives, then God says, I will establish you. I will bless you. I will empower you. I will use your life. And so he says here, you will be established. Now, what does that mean? It means just simply that we'll be set, fixed firmly. We're not wishy-washy. We're not easily moved. We're not easily uh, blown over. We are, uh, we are founded and then ordained. And so we see that in Jehoshaphat. He is the king. He deals with the problem. He goes and seeks out God. Uh, he comes in humility uh, and, he, and he lets God deal with him. He accepts God's promise. He, uh, he wins the battle. Uh, the battle is theirs. Ammon and Moab are defeated. Uh, and so, and, uh, and they move forward. And the faith of the people, because of the leadership of their king, is strengthened. And they see God moving and working on their behalf. And so the principle is this, if I, if I have faith, if I lead, if we lead together those in our, that God puts in our influence, then we build faith in people, we build, God builds faith in us, then we believe, then we're established. And so we need to be established. Now what are we established on? Because we're established on something this morning. If you're here and you've never heard this before, never made this connection, uh, and, and you'd say, well, Pastor, I, you know, I, I've never really been in church much, or I've never, then, then I'm, you are established on something. And, it, and you're established on what you know. I'm established on what I know. I've been blessed that I was introduced to the Lord uh, at a relatively young age uh, and was trained and have had essentially the majority of my lifetime serving the Lord and being taught and being trained and, uh, and having, having uh, parents that love the Lord and that serve the Lord and uh, kept us in church and, uh, and kept us just on, on track serving the Lord and gave us opportunity to do so. 
Uh, and so uh, we have a, an opportunity for an establishment on the Word of God. So why is that important? Because what we're established on is what we're standing on. And when the storms come, every once in a while we'll go down. We seldom go to Galveston whenever we want to go to the beach. Uh, but we'll go down to Follett's Island. It's a little bit further drive, but, uh, but there's not anybody there. Uh, and we kind of like that. And so we like to get away from the crowd and, uh, and, and we'll go out there. And sometimes we'll, uh, we'll especially when it gets, it gets so, uh, you know, about July and August, we'll, we'll take our, our plastic chairs off the back porch and take them out into the water and sit there. Uh, and within about three or four swells coming in, uh, we're sunk almost all the way down to where the chair's on the, uh, on the bottom of the seabed. It, it just sinks in. Uh, and you can, you can stand there. If I stand still, uh, every time it comes in, a little bit more sand gets pulled away from my feet. And all of a sudden, I'm not on solid ground, and I'm on uneven ground, and it's just going out from underneath me. Uh, and the pressure that I'm putting on it uh, with way too many pounds, uh, the water is taking the loose sand around it, and it's just making things, things uneven unstable. And we see that principle. Jesus teaches it in Matthew uh, chapter number 7 and verses 24 through 7 when he says, Therefore, whosoever heareth the sayings of mine, Jesus speaking, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house. And it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth those sayings of mine, and doeth them, uh, not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Uh, and so we see the principle. We know that principle. We know that passage. We understand it. Hey, if I build my life on sand, I'm, I'm unstable, and I'm not going to last. But if I'm built on the rock, and the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ, then uh, then uh, it can come beating against me, but I am going to be able to withstand the storm and I'm going to be able to stand the test and God is going to bless and empower uh, and use my life. And so that's the principle. That's what we see demonstrated in, uh, in these two kings, in Ahaz and in, uh, in Jehoshaphat. We see one that rejects truth and we see one that embraces truth. We see one that says, God, I don't care that I'm under siege if, I've, if, if, if relief from this means that I have to submit to your will and your principles and your way, then no, I'm not going to do it. Whereas Jehoshaphat says, before there's even a problem, God, I'm yours. I'm all yours. My nation is yours. My rule is yours. Not only that, I'm not going to make it easy for those that want to disobey you and serve other gods. I'm tearing down their places of worship. I'm going to the places that you forbade and I'm bringing them down. I'm not going to allow that to stand. And so, listen, I can live a life that's wishy-washy or I can live a life that's stable. Listen, we live on a, an earth that's cursed by sin. <laughs> I think we can all agree to that. Uh, and because of that, we have disease, we have sickness, we age, uh, we, we, you know, have a problem uh, maintaining weight. Some of us have a problem maintaining hair. Uh, and so actually, I have less trouble maintaining hair than my wife does, but that's a sore subject, so we'll pass on. Uh, and so, uh, but we have all of these things that we've got to cope with because uh, of sin on the earth. And it doesn't matter. Whether we're saved or whether we're lost, whether we're walking with God, whether we're in rebellion, we're going to deal with the same problems. 
God said, I'm going to make it to rain on the just and the unjust. That, that you know, listen, saved people are not immune from illness. Committed, obedient Christians are not immune from financial problems. We all live on the same earth that's been cursed by sin. And we all have to deal with the same problems. We all have to experience loss. We all have to experience gain. We get to experience the joys of children being born into our family while we grieve the loss of those that are going out into eternity. We all have to, uh, to you know, go through all of the trials of life, the, the pains and the frustration of getting older, dreams realized or dreams shattered. We, we all go through those things. Some people bear them well. Some people come unraveled. There are some that uh, if they got the diagnosis that some of you have gotten in the last several months, that their whole life would be in shambles. I marvel at uh, Miss Rita every week when she comes in, when she's able to come. She's undergoing chemo. She has to start all over again this week. She had some problems and had uh, to take some antibiotics. And now we're right back to square one. We got to start again. But she came in with her walker. She takes it up and beats Terry in the back of the head with it when he needs a good whack. And I commend her for that. Uh, and so, uh, and so but, uh, but she just makes her way in. And she's careful where she's got to be careful. She's always got a sweet spirit. She's always got a smile. If there's anybody here this morning uh, that, that I would look at and say, uh, that wanted to call and say, hey, pastor, I, I just don't think I'm going to make it today, or to come in and I say, uh, how you doing? Never, never does she say when I say, how are you doing? Even when I know it's a dumb question because she's had a rough week, uh, and I say, how are you doing? She always just smiles, and, uh, and she'll say, it's been okay. Amen. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. You know why? And she's back there pointing at the Lord. That's exactly right, because she's established on a rock not on sand. Lost people get that kind of diagnosis and they've got no hope. And they don't know how things are going to go. And they're wondering about what's going to come next. I'll tell you one thing about Miss B back here, she's not worried about what's coming next. I mean, it doesn't get any worse than this. It's only going to get better. And so, I mean, even if it gets worse here for a little bit, eventually it's going to be all good. We're all going to be in the presence of the Savior. We're all going to have glorified, renewed bodies. We're all going to be uh, with Him for all of eternity. Listen, the, the lost world can't understand that concept and the peace of God that passes all understanding. Why? Because they have no hope because their life is built on sand. And when this, those storms come, all of their confidence is eroded away. And it doesn't matter how wealthy they are, how much power they have, how much money they have. It, none of that matters when it comes to that moment. What matters is, has my foot been set firmly on the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I know He's my Savior? And when I come and stand before Him, am I going to stand there ashamed of the life that I live? Or am I going to stand there longing for and expecting for Him to say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. We all have that choice. We have that ability to choose. We have that ability to say, as Ahaz and Jehoshaphat have, uh, that I will or I will not do, God, what you've given me to do. 
So do I want God's blessing? Do I want God's empowerment? I think invariably all of us would say, yes, I want God to bless my life. Yes, I want God to be pleased with my life. Yes, I want God to work in my life and I want my life to be stable. And I understand that I'm going to have to go through at times, difficult times. When I go through those times, I hope that I'll be a testimony and a blessing to those that witness me go through it, that I'll be able to help others see Christ in my suffering whenever God chooses a time, uh, rather than to say, man, suffering came and he questioned everything he ever believed. I had a fellow in our church in Arkansas several years ago that <coughs> he had uh, uh, been faithfully serving the Lord for decades, uh, was diagnosed with cancer. When he got the diagnosis, it was, it was almost certainly uh, a hopeless cause. It was in a very, very difficult place, in an operable place. And I remember seeing him in the hospital and he would just, he would just see an eye in the room and he'd break down crying to the point where I would just look at him and, and are you sure that you know the Lord? Are you sure that you're saved? Are you doubting your decision in Christ and Christ promised to save your soul? And, uh, and, uh, and he, he says he wasn't. And I certainly before that moment would have never questioned his walk with God or his, or his salvation testimony. And it's not for me to question anyway. That's between him and the Lord. But as his pastor in that moment, seeing him in that way, shaken, I was just... Are you sure? I don't know about you, but if that's the way that God brings me to heaven, I hope in that moment that I'm able to lay there and take the treatment, do whatever I've got to do, and enjoy the moments that I have with my family the best that I can, and sing and praise God on my way to heaven. Amen. I'm just saying that's the life that I think that most of us would say, and that's the experience that I think that most of us would say, yeah, I want to go to heaven that way. Not that we want to suffer, but... However we go, I, you know, obviously we'd all just rather go to sleep one night and wake up in heaven. That would be wonderful. But that's not, way that, not the way that God chooses to bring a lot of us. So what do I do? How do I know that I'm going to have that? Everyone this morning has principles. You know, I used to think, how could, you know, the crazy people in American politics, they have no principles. And that's really not fair or true. They, they have principles. They're just not the same principles that we have. The, the principles that I live my life by, are they founded on the word of God and do they please the Lord? The foundation that we choose to build upon will determine our success or failure in this life. See, we all are going to build a life. And pastor, I'm way past the, that time. I'm at the end. Uh, the building's been built. You still got time if you built it on a bad foundation to tear it down and build again. God. May not be as big as it could have been at one point, but a micro house built on the foundation of Jesus Christ is better than a mansion built on shifting sand. Yeah. We come and we understand uh, that we all have principles that we live by. And I want to point out just three principles that will help us that I believe that we see, especially in 2 Chronicles chapter 17. I think we've seen it here in chapter 20. And the passage that we've already read once, so for sake of time, I'm, we're about out of time. I'm going to give these to you quickly. <coughs> but some principles to live by. Three principles to live by that will allow God to bless me and allow my life to be successful. And when I say successful, I don't mean success defined the way the world defines success. Uh, I, I, listen, if, if God has blessed you financially, if you have a great retirement plan, if you have a, a beautiful paid off home, if you've got all that, praise God for that. 
and no one begrudges you that. You've done well. You've been wise. God has blessed you. And the Bible says we should leave an inheritance for our children. I'm not critical of any of that. I'm just saying that's not a definition of success. There are some people that go to heaven that don't have a penny in the bank, that don't have a car to drive or a roof over their head. They're living with their children. They've got nothing to leave behind, but they've sent everything ahead. And they die successful because they've lived and pleased God. Now, uh, so understand, I, I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher. I don't believe the Bible teaches it. I believe that God does bless some people in that way. Uh, some people, God in his wisdom knows that if he blessed them in that way, it would ruin them and they, they couldn't handle it. And so uh, that's God's business. I'm just saying that if I want to be successful, I'm defining that by I want to be able to stand before my Savior when I get to heaven and know that he's pleased with my life. That he's pleased with what I did on his behalf and how I humbled myself and allowed him uh, to use my life. And so the first thing I want to point out this morning, the thing I see here is, is in 2 Chronicles chapter 17. Uh, and we're not going to reread the passage, but in verse 4. But sought the Lord, Jehoshaphat, God of his father and walked in his commandments and not after the doings of Israel. And verse number 9. And he sent out the prophets and the scribes and the Levites. And they taught in Judah and had the book of the law and the, of the Lord with them and went about throughout all the cities of Judah and taught the people. So what do we see here? The first thing I want to draw out is, is that if I would live a successful life, I must be established on the word of God. I must have a life that's established on the word of God. So pastor, but the Bible doesn't, it's not specific to say, uh, you know, this is who I should marry and this is where I should work and this is where I should live. No, but it's filled with principles that if you walk with the spirit of God and you live by the principles of God's word, he will lead you and confirm to you those decisions that he has for you so that you, your life is not a wreck, but it's blessed and empowered by God. And just our youngest daughter, many of you came and we're grateful and everyone was kind and uh, a blessing to our family. But last Saturday at our daughter Elena's wedding. <coughs> and so, <clears throat> however many people there are on the earth today, seven billion, something like that. God made one person for you. And we always try to teach our children, if you go out searching for someone, you're in trouble. You've got, if it's evenly divided, Three and a half billion men, three and a half billion uh, women. You've got a one and three and a half billion shot at getting the right one. Good luck. Or I can just trust the Lord and pray and live for God and ask God to bring me the right person, his person of his choice at the right time. My wife and I have been married 33 years. We have four children. We've got uh, all married now, five grandchildren, one grandchild on the way. I started to say one on the way, not another child, grandchild. Uh, and so uh, that would be a miracle and a, a, a reason to just hide somewhere and die. Uh, and so uh, it would be at this stage of life. Uh, it, it's just, you know, God, God has been very gracious and God has been very kind. She came from a little island in the Caribbean called Puerto Rico. She came from uh, the baby of nine children. She, uh, she ended up in a Bible college just south of, in northwest Indiana, just south of Chicago. Uh, and I was born in Irving, Texas. 
we didn't meet because we went searching for someone. We met because we were following the will of God for our lives and God happened to bring our paths together at the right time. That was his choice. And we've been happily married for 33 years. And there are a lot of people that, uh, that they kind of find their own way. They find the world's way. They just do things away and sometimes they get lucky. They strike it rich and they have a long and they have a meaningful relationship and, uh, and marriage and they find happiness. But more often than not, it ends badly. Why? Because it wasn't established on the principles of God's word. And so we want to live a life that's established by the Word of God and on the Word of God. Three thoughts about this. If I'm going to be established on the Word of God, I must know what it says. I can't establish my life on the principles of God's Word if I don't know what they are. Yeah. It's my responsibility to know what the Word of God says. Just like it's our responsibility to know the laws of our land, it's our responsibility to know the principles of the Word of God go break a law and get investigated ignorance is no defense and ignorance isn't going to be any defense when we stand before God either no one's going to stand before God and say I didn't know you had every opportunity to find out if you wanted to know I made it available to you and God's going to be able to go back and say, I put this person in your life on this day when you were this age in this place. And I, uh, I put this person in your life at this stage of your life. And I gave you an opportunity here. And at this page, I put a desire in your heart to seek me. But you said no. It's just like Ahaz, who's here under siege. And God says, if you'll do this, everything will be fine. He says, I will not do that. And we get to the end and we want to be, play the victim how could a loving God, that loving God lovingly gave us multiple opportunities throughout our lifetime to be drawn to him and to come to him and to choose him. And if we say no, that's not on God. If our nation continues to say no, that's not on God. When we look at all of those, you need to understand that if I would be established on the word of God, I must first know what it says, which means that I have a responsibility to, to understand that I should be a student of God's word. Did you study God's word this week? How much time did you spend in his Bible this week? How many chapters did you read? More importantly, how many of them did you read slowly enough that you could actually glean and understand what they were trying to communicate to you? It's not really so important that you, uh, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of reading through your Bible every year. I think it's very helpful. It keeps us in the book. I think it helps if you do it, especially, and if you read through it a couple of times a year, you begin to put more and more things together. However, most people can't consume that much information and make the connections on a regular basis. If I'm going to do that, and this is typically my way, I try to get through it at least once. Most of the time I try to get through it twice a year. But I also have times where I want to take just small amounts, small portions, and I want to really delve into that. And I want to mine it. And I want to understand it. And I read commentators about it. And I'll do word studies on it. And I'll look and find out what did this word mean in its Greek or Hebrew, where it came from, and uh, what were the root words of that. What is it really that God was communicating? What context was it given in? To what was the culture like that it was preached to? See, we have big problem here for all of our lifetimes we've been we've been evaluating and assessing the bible with a western mindset but the bible is a book that was written to an eastern culture 
And if I don't go back and stop and understand that, then I'm going to misapply a lot of principles of the Bible in my life today. And so, I want to be a student of the Word of God. Know what it says. Be a student of the Word. Secondly, I would say, on being established by the Word of God, is that I must believe what it says by faith. It doesn't do me any good to know it if I don't believe it. I know all of the arguments that the liberals make for their, the things that they, the agendas that they want to push. Whether it be all of the, uh, all of the <clears throat> immorality that they want to push through education pr principles and, and, and entertainment and all of those things, or whether it be, uh, whether it be, uh, you know, the, the way that they manipulate scientific truth to try to justify uh, you know, infanticide and abortion and all of those types of things. Uh, and so, and by the way, if you're visiting and you wonder how I feel about abortion, I believe that it is premeditated, cold-blooded murder. I'm not trying to scare you away, uh, but, but God is the decider of life. God gives life. And whatever happens tomorrow, whenever the order comes down or the ruling comes down from the Supreme Court, uh, praise God if it goes the way that they're reporting it's going to go. Amen. It's not going to end at all. But it's progress. There are no telling. We're in such wonder where I'm rabbit trailing for just a minute. But we're in such a a, a moral demise in America because of. Uh, I wonder how many. I wonder how many D.L. Moody's and J. Frank Norris and uh, Lee Robertsons and Curtis Hudson's and uh, and people of those great preachers of yesteryear. Uh, I wonder how many of them were aborted in their mother's womb. And we are in the state that we're in because they were never born to preach the message that God gave them so that the world, our country, could be impacted by the gospel. So, Pastor, but what about this? What about that? God's grace can intervene in every circumstance and change someone's life. Listen, what I'm saying is, is that I must believe what it says by faith. I have to just take the word of God, take its principles. Pastor, I don't know if I've got enough faith to believe that. Well, we've got some biblical help for that too. Because there were men in the Bible that said, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Amen. When they said, and what are they saying there? They're saying, we want to believe, but we don't have enough faith yet. Would you give us some more faith? Well, how do I get that? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Study the book. The more that I know the book, the more faith God will give me, and the more that I can trust him. Amen. Why? Because the more I see it come alive before me, and the more I see God revealing himself in everything around me, but if I don't know what it says, I miss the point. Yes. And we live in a world that's missed the point because they're biblically illiterate. And they can't see God moving and they can't feel God moving and they can't understand God moving because they don't know what to look for. But when you know what to look for and when God and you see it come to life, God uses it powerfully in your life. Believe what it says by faith. And I say by faith because sometimes I just need to believe what it says whether I understand it or not and trust God. There's, listen, it's good to understand why. It's good to investigate why. It's not always bad to ask why. But there are times when it's just time to trust. Sometimes there's not time to question. Sometimes in life critical situations, there's no time to question. There just is trust. And when it comes down to pastor, I just, I can't do that because I don't, I don't get it, understand it. What do I do? Listen, if the Bible says it, just trust God and do what he says. 
But I don't understand why. It doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't have to make sense to me. It makes sense to God. He knows more than we do. He understands the big picture. I can only just see this little bitty, this little bitty part of the puzzle. He sees the whole thing in its completion. My, I, 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 especially around holidays, <coughs> we'll get big puzzles out. My daughter, one of my daughters-in-law in particular likes the puzzle and I'll sit down and a lot of times we'll sit there and we'll work on a puzzle for two or three days together off and on. And it's amazing when you're starting out how, far, how hard it is to just get a couple of pieces to go together. And it's amazing how when you get to the end, it becomes so easy. We'll do like a 2,000 piece puzzle and it'll take us forever, it seems like, to get the first two or 300 pieces together. But it only takes about 20 minutes when we both get rolling to get the last 500 pieces together. Why? Because the picture's coming into focus. Amen. Things beginning to make sense. Mm. Beginning to see things that we couldn't see before. God sees it all from the beginning. Amen. Don't question God because you can't see because we're at the beginning. Understand what he says. Be committed. Believe what it says by faith. And then thirdly here, be committed to follow its guidelines. If I'm not committed to follow the guidelines, I'm not going to follow them. If I'm only going to follow them when it's easy, when it's convenient, I'm not going to follow them for long. We need to realize that we, if we want God's blessing, we don't have a choice. We have a lot of veterans in our church. I'm a veteran. I remember entering the service. And it dawned on me really quickly that whenever they stand up and tell you what to do, that you don't have a choice. If you want to survive, you better just do it. If you want to live with minimal pain as possible, you better just do it. You don't have a choice. And the bottom line is, in the Christian life, we have a choice. But we don't have a choice if we want God's blessing. We do it God's way and God blesses us, or we choose not to and he doesn't. So if I want God's blessing, I don't have a choice. Am I committed to doing things God's way to following biblical guidelines? So first of all, be established in the word of God. If I want God's blessing, then secondly, I must be established in the will of God. Notice what he says in 2 Chronicles chapter 17 and verse number 6. As he's going through here, he says, And his heart was lifted up in the ways of the Lord. He wasn't just making this academic he wasn't trying to follow some formula to blessing. He had a sincere, real, genuine desire to know God and to please him. I remember sitting in a church service with my, my sons in a, at a conference many years ago. Back in 2006 or 7, they were still teenagers at home. And, and we, I took them and I just wanted to see some things where I grew up and uh, in my latter years of high school and, and college years. And so we went to a conference and I remember the pastor of this large church getting up and he's, uh, and he's preaching away and he, was, he got real big for a while on formulas. The Bible's filled with formulas, he would say. It's got a formula for this. If you want, and, and it boiled down to this. If you want this from God, follow this formula and God will give it to you. The problem with that, one of the problems with that, is that I'm trying to manipulate God. Yeah. I'm not trying to know God. And the whole point of the Christian life is to know him. Yeah. This is not about religion. This is about worship. This is about relationship. Religion will destroy your life. A relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ will give you a life of value and meaning. 
And so when I understand the concept and what we're trying to say here is this. He says his heart was lifted up in the ways of the Lord. His heart was full and bubbling over with doing and knowing God and doing things the way that God would have them do and would please him. And so be established in the will of God. There's some obvious things from scripture and we're going to not spend much time here. We're about out, but three thoughts about this. Number one, understand that it's God's will that we serve him. It is the will of God that every child of God serve their father. Well, what does that mean for me, pastor? That's what you have to have a relationship with God to discern and figure out. Well, can I come and sit down with you and, and you tell me what to do? No, you can't because it's between you and God. Now, I can try to help you discern some things, but if God calls you to, uh, to be a preacher, we've got some young men that are uh, called to preach. And if God, and Pedro here is still pretty young, so I'm going to pick on him for a minute. Uh, if, if God calls you, Pedro, if God ever calls you to preach, it's not going to be because, he's not going to call me to call you to preach. In other words, God's not going to knock on my door and say, hey, go tell Pedro he's called to preach. Now, I know some churches and pastors have functioned that way, but that's not biblical. If God calls you to preach, God's perfectly capable of telling you himself. Yes. We don't need manufactured ministers or manufactured anything else in service to God. We need people that have a real relationship with Christ, that have a real desire to please and serve him, that have a real understanding of biblical principle, that when God speaks to them and says, hey, I need you to be the greeter, or I need you to drive the van, or I need you to work with children, or I need you to sing in the choir, or I need you to sing a special, or I need you to preach the gospel, or I need you to teach a class, or I need you to be a helper in this class, or I need you, you're doing it because you sincerely believe it's what God's called you to do and when you do that God's blessing abounds and everybody in the body of Christ benefits because of it Amen. be established in the will of God what does that mean it means it's the will of God that we serve him I cannot please God if I do not serve God where do I serve him wherever he leads and tells you and God opens doors whenever we surrender ourselves to him secondly I would say it's God's will that the lost are reached there is no question biblically that it is the will of God that the gospel go forth and that people come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and surrender their life to his will and live for him. And it is the responsibility of the New Testament church to take that message forward and to help people find their way. Amen. How do you know that, Pastor? Because 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I believe in verse 4, says that we have been put in trust with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been put into our care, the care of the New Testament church, to carry it forth, to proclaim its message, to make disciples of those uh, that are converted and that become believers in Christ, to help them live lives and learn to live lives that are pleasing and honoring to God. That's an opportunity to serve. It's God's will that all the lost, that the lost are reached. Thirdly, I would say that it's God, that God has a will for your life, your life. So, Pastor, it's great. God called you to preach. He had a will for your life. He has a will for your life, too. And the will that he has for your life is just as important to his objectives eternally as his will, of, as his will for my life was. My life is not any more special than the, than the person that, that God leads to work in the nursery. My role as a pastor is no more important than that individual discipler that sits down and teaches someone the word of God. 
My role as a pastor is no more valuable to the church. Listen, it, it, this would be an empty place, talking about up here on the platform, if there was no one to greet a guest, if there was no one to work in a nursery, if there was no one to teach a class, if there was no one to paint a wall, if there was no one to fix a problem when it arises, if there was, that we are one body brought together by God to serve together, to lead together, to live together, to, uh, and to, to work for, the, for what God's given us to do together. And when he's pleased, he blesses. He has a will for your life, and it's your responsibility to figure out and find out what that will is and to execute it. We see this morning we need to be established on the word of God, that we need to be established in the will of God, and then lastly, that we should be established in the work of God. I'm grateful that all of my formative life has revolved around church. My activities as, a, as a, an older teenager, outside of going to work, all of my social life revolved around the church that we attended. Christian school, sports, friends, youth activities, youth group on Wednesday night, all of it was centric to that. When our children were still young and at home and, uh, and growing up, especially our, our boys who are too older, uh, that they're coming up. We, we were together at school. We were together at church. We were together at basketball practice. We were uh, on road trips together to, to games. I was uh, not always their coach, but for many of the years I was their coach. And uh, we were just in a, in a mode where it was a lot of hours and we were always tired, but we were always together. And our whole world revolved around the people that we worship God with, that we serve God with, and that we, uh, that we lived life with. Especially if you went back, would you do it any differently? I don't think there's anything that I would care to change. There may be some minor decisions here and there along the way, but I'm grateful that God had that in mind for our family, for our life. And we reap the benefits of that and we have the memories of that together. Listen, what I'm saying is be established in the work of God. My Christian life is not something that I turn off on Sunday night and turn back on again next Sunday morning. There are a lot of people that live that way. They're great Christians on Sunday, but you would never have any clue that they knew God during the week. That's not a life that pleases God or that God can bless. We, God didn't call us to just come together and worship on Sunday. We should be worshiping Him every day. We should be looking for opportunities and ways to serve and please Him every day. We should be following His will for our life every day. I'm not saying that we wouldn't have that we shouldn't have relationship with neighbors and coworkers and uh, and people that we meet out and about, but by and large, those relationships should be about bringing those people to Christ. Our real, deep, meaningful relationship should be with those that we that we pull together with. Listen, my my lost neighbor uh, is is we're friendly to one another and we help one another when we've got needs. And uh, sometimes if I'm down, he'll uh, he'll help care for my yard. And sometimes when he's down, I'll help care for his. And uh, and and we're, we're kind and compassionate to one another in that regard. Uh, but the bottom line is is that he's not going to help me walk with God. Whenever he needs some prayer, he'll come to me once in a while, he's got once or twice, and, uh, and say, hey, I've got this really big thing going on in life. Would you pray for me? And I always do. I'm happy to. But I, if I had something similar going on, he's not somebody I go to and ask to pray for me. Why? Because there's no walk. There's no relationship with God. I'm not saying that he's a bad guy. He's a, he's, by the world's account, he's a great, he's a great guy. 
I can be his friend, but I'm not going to be a close friend. I'm not going to let him into the inner secrets of my life. Why? Because we don't have that in common. I'm just saying I want to be established in the work of God. Why? Three reasons why, and we'll be done. Number one, because nothing is as important as God's work. There is nothing more important than the work of God. Now understand, God has to do his work, but also understand that God uses people to do his work. Nothing gets done unless God does it. We don't build the church, Jesus built the church. Nowhere in the scripture is man commanded to go and build a church. Jesus said, I will build my church. We're committed to know him, to serve him, to assemble, to worship, to do his will. Nothing is important as God's work. Secondly, I realize that nothing is as rewarding as God's work. Listen, if you ever get to a place in your life, and those of you that have can testify to what I'm saying, but you fully surrendered yourself, you know the will of God for your life, you're pursuing it, you're living it, you're doing it, then you would stand with me and say that there is nothing more rewarding than this. And, and, you know, God has blessed us over the years. And God's used us in ways and, and given us opportunities that we certainly uh, never deserve career-wise and uh, military service-wise and things of that nature. Uh, but, the, but the reality is, is that there's not any of that that's as rewarding as serving God. And we have to understand that serving God is... is preacher from another generation used to put it this way the doing of right is its own reward just do right another great preacher from that era would say do right, do right, till the stars fall do right lastly I would say God's work is to be done by God's people the lost world can't do the work of God they can try and they can mean well but they'll never do what God could do through his people. Listen, Jehoshaphat, Ahaz, two men, kings, same nation, different eras, similar circumstances. God comes to one and says, the battle's going to fail. I can empower you and I can bless you and I can establish your kingdom. If you'll do this, I will not do it. And another says, God, I'm going to do everything that I believe honors and pleases you, whether you do anything for me or not. Nowhere do you see in Jehoshaphat's resume where he went to God and made a deal. He was ascended to the throne. He did what was right. He studied the word of God. He sent it out to be taught. And what God did as far as reward, establishment of kingdom really didn't play a part in the picture. He just did it because he loved God. And the message is clear this morning. You can either choose to do things the world's way, our way, our flesh's way, and not be established. Or I can do all the things that God has given me to do because I love him. And God will establish me and bless me. And honor the service and sacrifice so that he's glorified. We have to choose. The choice is yours. I can't choose it for you. You can't choose it for me. But don't misunderstand. You must make a choice. God, I'm going to continue to do it my way. Or, God, I'm going to do it your way.
So, Pastor, I need more details about God's way. <laughs> Study the book. Walk with your Savior. You'll be surprised at what he'll show you when you avail yourself to his word.